Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast number 176. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we are looking at two films from the sublime to the ridiculous. The sublime film is John Cassavetti's 1968 drama Faces starring Gina Rowlands and John Marley. Then we go to something totally silly, Brain Donors, a Zucker film from 1982 starring John Turturro. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll start the show. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old and I have to like it. Now you can leave feedback via mp3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com that's k-u-l-t-g-u-r-u which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. Hi, happy all. How's it going? Um, yes, summertime is here. This morning there was not a cloud in the sky. But we're getting a little bit overcast here, but it's warm. It's summer. Um, sleigh bells are jingling, even though the sleighs are probably running on snow here in Australia. And all of that kind of stuff's happening. Um, hope you're doing okay. Hope you've done your shopping. Because that's got to be the major pain in the ass is Christmas shopping. Um, and the internet's been good for that, of course, because you can sit on your ass, on your couch, in your underwear, and get all your Christmas shopping done. I mean, the 21st century does have its advantages. We haven't done a terrible amount of Christmas shopping this year because um, we usually buy a lot of good things for each other. But this time we bought the Xbox One, and that's a shared Christmas present. So we're kind of um, cool with that. We have sent some stuff up to families, and I found out something interesting to sending stuff by courier in Australia, if you're in Australia, and I know only about 15% of you are, send stuff interstate by courier if it's bigger than an envelope because it's going to save you money. That's all I've got to say. Um, and they pick it up at your door and they deliver it to the other person's door. And um, Australia Post doesn't do that. So great stuff, um, couriers. I mean, privatising government industries isn't something I'm normally in favour of, but this case private enterprise has done a pretty good job of it so not entirely unhappy with that aspect of it um the rest of it can go to hell we need to keep things in public ownership and all of that bolshy stuff i usually spout so as i said at the start doing two movies i watched for the first time john cassavetti's faces from 1968 and after watching that which is an intense emotional experience it really is full-on in the best of ways uh, i thought i can't really do a second cassavetti's movie for this podcast the first one's rung me out like a dish rag so i'm going to do something lighter i'm going to find something a bit interesting a little bit light a little bit of a souffle of a movie to balance out the um interesting fascinating and incredibly well acted wonderfulness of faces so i decided to do brain donors which is uh, an interesting little film. It's kind of like an attempt to do a 1990s version of a Marx Brothers comedy. Stars John Turturro, Mel Smith and Bob Nelson. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's one of those vulgar pleasures. What I might th- I think I'd do... Let me know if you, what you think of this idea. What I thought I might do is do a month of vulgar pleasure movies for both Martian Drive-In and Paleo Cinema Podcast. So I'll arbitrarily pick a month during the year and do two podcasts about 
vulgar pleasures. As you know, I don't do guilty pleasures. I think guilt's a religious concept. I'll do vulgar pleasures. So I'll, I'll kind of go with the down market and then the kind of not very good, but really kind of in my ballpark movies and uh, do a couple of podcasts about that. So let me know how you go um, with that idea and whether you'd like me to do it. So as I said, I haven't done any um, shopping really. It's been a weird couple of months. There have been some um, redundancies at work and a whole bunch of good people have left. So it's kind of my headspace has been in survival mode to a certain extent. So haven't been doing too much else beside working and uh, podcasting and doing the radio. And speaking of the radio, Liz and I ended the year on a big note. We kind of went to one of the classic films of all time. Uh, that's my ABC local radio Northern Territory gig with Liz Travaskas. And so we did Citizen Kane. Now there's so much to say about Citizen Kane and the backstory to it is so vast the um, movie itself, the political and social aspects of the movie, the innovative um, filmmaking techniques used. There's so much to say, and we had 20 minutes to say it. But nonetheless, we did hit the high notes and did really kind of, as much as you can within that limited format, talk about all the cool stuff in Citizen Can. We even kind of obliquely mentioned the true meaning of Rosebud, and I don't mean the sled when I say that. You may have to look that up, but Rosebud is something else entirely. Uh, just type in Rosebud Marion Davies into a search engine, you'll know what I mean. So we obliquely alluded to that after a little bit of a discussion. And it was great. And also, I'm doing the radio gig next year. I have been invited back to do the ABC Local Radio Northern Territory gig in 2016, which will make about my sixth year of doing this which is kind of cool, the fact that they want me to do it, and um, I enjoy doing it. I find it challenging, I find it interesting, I, I like sharing what I know about movies, as you guys obviously know, and um, to be asked back again is an honour for me, I, I really like being a part of the national broadcaster, and um, yeah, so next year, <laughs> a whole bunch of new movies to do, probably about 20 or 30 of them, um, I think we do about 40 weeks a year all up, which is not too bad a job. Uh, you have to listen to them live because there is no place where they put it on SoundCloud or anything like that, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, it's um, it's such a great thing for me to do, and I love doing it as much as I love doing anything in my life. So, what have I been watching? Now, uh, the list of movies that I've done for 2015 is up on um, Letterboxd. And I've got 395 I'm up to at the moment. There are probably a couple that weren't in Letterboxd that um, I wasn't able to put on there. So we'll just say 395. So basically over a, a movie a day I've been watching. Uh, so what I've watched, there's some interesting stuff in there. I watched Eraser, the Arnold Schwarzenegger one, because it popped up on Netflix. And I thought I wanted to have a meat bet, you know, kind of a meathead action film. And that kind of filled the bill. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Vanessa Williams and... Uh, Lots of kind of turn of the millennium special effects stuff. Nothing special as far as the Schwarzenegger movie is concerned. But, um, yeah, it was kind of time-filling. And I was still in an action movie thing. So I did a 2011 movie that turned up on Netflix again. I've been getting a few movies from Netflix. And I did a Dave Batista movie, uh, House of the Rising Sun, which also stars Amy Smart, Danny Trejo's in it, and a bunch of other people. Um, it's kind of a crime movie set in Grand Rapids, Michigan, of all places, um, with Dave Bautista. He's the guy who played Drax the Destroyer in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. 
and it's a not a bad little solid action flick. Um, it runs it cost about a million bucks to make, so it was very low budget for that kind of thing. Uh, but it, it kind of works, and uh, it's a programmer in the in the sense of an old B movie programmer that kind of they had the A film and then the B film. It's kind of a B film programmer there. Not done too badly at all. Has a, a good honest ending rather than a Hollywood ending, which I like. And, um, yeah, it kind of works. And I think Dave Bautista is an interesting guy uh, who may be a better character actor than we give him credit for. I want to see what he does in the future. He was very good as Mr. Um, Hink, I think it is, in the most recent James Bond film, Spectre. So I look forward to seeing what uh, Bautista does in the future. Then, uh, let's see what else. Sally and I sat down to watch one of her um, sci-fi channel films. We watched Zombie Shark, which is a really bad special effects shark movie. And Sal's got this addiction to shark movies for no good reason. And it was exactly what was on the um, label. Really bad special effects. Girls in bikinis getting eaten by sharks. Zombie sharks. Dodgy science trying to defeat them. Lots of people getting blown up with bad explosions. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly what... Um, it says it is, but I've got two recommendations for movies that I've watched in the last week. Leave Zombie Sharks alone if you, unless you want to see a Zombie Shark movie. And the first one is Mr. Holmes. I saw that one with um, Ian McKellen and Laura Linney in it. Um, it's good. It's about the end of Sherlock Holmes' life. He's in his 90s. He's suffering from cognitive problems, and he has to kind of remember his very last case and, and his memories shot and um, with the help of his housekeeper's young son, he goes back and rediscovers why he stopped being a detective and what his last case was. And it's a good one, too. It's a very solid uh, mystery. I think the mystery part is the easiest part of that um, case for Sherlock Holmes to solve. And it makes the character of Holmes confront his shortcomings without doing a spoiler on it. Uh, it's really good. McKellen is extremely good in it. Laura Linney is doing a uh, kind of working-class English accent very well. Uh, the mise-en-scene is fantastic. It's set in post-World War II um, Sussex, for the most part. Though there is a, a little digression to Japan immediately after World War II, which um, brings Holmes some interesting insights into the world post-World War II world. Uh, the character's 93 at the time. And yeah, if you haven't seen it, give it a go. I think it's a good, solid little drama there with a character that we know and love seeing him in a new light and in a new part of his life, and uh, it's worth checking out. The other one is another small film I saw on Netflix, and Netflix has, been the, has become the home of interesting little kind of small films this one cost a million bucks to make as well and it's a movie called hits which was written and directed by david cross which basically kicks the balls into media culture as we have it in the 21st century particularly relating to the internet uh hits of course being hits on youtube in this instance uh it's got a whole bunch of mostly um stand-up comedians and improv comedians in it but the story basically is this guy goes to town 
council meetings and they, you know how they give them three minutes in front of a microphone at town council and rants and raves about potholes in his street and other problems in the town and things like that. And he, through accident, becomes a, an internet, internet celebrity. And his daughter, who wanted, wants to be on the face and wants to be a singer and has absolutely no talent as a singer, we also see her character arc has she... Um, who is desperate to be a media star, and he's totally oblivious to most of the internet, um, and how she's affected by her father's sudden internet celebrity. And there's a really nice third act in this movie. There is a twist there that um, makes a large amount of sense, and it's um, it's a really nice little film. It, it kind of does satirise and critique modern internet culture in a, a, an entertaining way. It's got a slow burn. It starts out fairly slowly. But um, I recommend hits. Check it out. It's, it's more, well worth your time. So that's about all I've been watching, really. Pause while I drink some mineral water to clear the clag out of my throat. Uh, so I'm going to take a break. I'm going to get back. I'm going to do these in reverse chronological order, these two movies, because I think Faces is the one that needs to end the show. And I'm going to look at the Zucker Brothers film from 1992, Brain Donors, starring John Turturro, Bob Nelson, and Mel Smith. And before I go, I should mention that basis on the basis that we've now had the Paris Summit on uh, Carbon and Climate Change, and that the whole world has agreed to stop burning fossil fuels and to try to deal with global climate change. This podcast, which I record during the daytime, is the recording of it's entirely powered by solar cells. We've got the solar cells on the roof now, and so I've got a carbon-neutral podcast, at least as far as the recording of it's concerned. So I'm doing my little bit for the Paris Accords, Viva la France, and all that kind of thing. So you may feel free to listen to this podcast guilt-free because it is not burning fossil fuels. Back in a moment. My very heavy fatherland Whenever will you understand I'll sweat for you with all my might But rather more by day than night I'm sitting at my desk by one Among the urgent files galore a little fatty drinking done I'm back at home for drinks at four At private interviews I'm posed The weary statesman in his chair But keep my mouth severely closed With diplomatic savoir-faire I play my part without a doubt Though the results are somewhat thin I use my in-tray as an out and vice versa, out and in. The strain of it is great indeed Until the day I see the light No wonder that I sorely need A little change of scene at night I'm off to Shell Maxime To join the whirling stream for one brief hour entrancing The moments fly romancing Lolo, dodo, juju, 
Clomargo Fufu. But when it comes to dancing, goodbye, my fatherland. At Maxim's once again, I swim in pink champagne. When people ask what bliss is, I simply answer this is Lolo Dodo Shushu. But when it comes to kisses, goodbye, my fatherland. That, as any sophisticated person will know, is I'm off to share Maxime from Franz Lehar's The Merry Widow, sung in this instance by Jeremy Brent, who played Sherlock Holmes on TV for a while in the 80s and was widely considered to be the most canonically accurate Sherlock Holmes on the screen. So there you go. There's a link back to me talking about Mr. Holmes, the movie, just a little while earlier. And I like a little bit of light operetta. I'm kind of learning a little bit about opera at the moment and operetta. And there's some stuff there I, I can't stand, but there's some stuff I like, and I kind of like the lightness of uh, The Merry Widow, which is basically a French farce done as an operetta. But, uh, yeah, so there is... Um, Actually, there were some movie versions of uh, The Merry Widow, too. I was going to mention that. There was uh, a couple of versions with Marie Chevalier in the 1930s, one of which was, I think, directed by Lubitsch. Then there was a really um, awkward version done in the 1950s, about 1952, starring Fernando Lamas and Lana Turner. So there you go. Anyway, uh, on to the movies of which I am going to speak. The first one is Brain Donors, which is a remake, in a sense, though unofficial, it doesn't actually state that in the credits, of A Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers movie from the 1930s. Uh, the Zucker Brothers, who we know from things like Airplane, Hot Shots and all of those kind of films with you know, the kind of shotgun comedy approach where you throw so many jokes and throw so many side gags at the audience that even though not all of them are going to really stick, the um, overwhelming kind of response from audiences is that the movies are very funny because it is a shotgun approach to comedy in a sense where you fire off lots of pellets and some of them will hit home and some of them will go right past the audience or just will fall short. And that is how they kind of run their comedy thing. They got their comedy writing partner, Pat Proft, to write this adaptation of... Um, a Night of the Opera. So the two brothers, um, David and Jerry Zucker, uh, who had gone to school together and started the Kentucky Fried Theatre, they of course did the Kentucky Fried Movie, amongst other things. Police Squad, Top Secret, Ruthless People, Naked Gun series, they were very famous for doing that kind of stuff. So in 1991, roughly, they put out a movie that was going to be called Lame Ducks with the studio, and unfortunately, that was their last contractually obligated piece for Paramount Pictures, and they went off to another studio. And so Paramount Pictures basically threw the shits and decided they weren't going to give this much publicity. They put it into a few theatres, and they didn't really give it the same kind of push that they had earlier um, Zucker Brothers films because the guys were no longer with the studio and fucked them, which is the kind of approach 
Now, this shows you how ruthless Hollywood is in a way, because uh, Jerry Zucker, a couple of years before, had had an enormous hit for Paramount Studios with the movie Ghost. You know, the one with um, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore and the, and the clay and all that kind of shit. They, you know, basically the studio cut him dead, even though they still had a relationship making the next two Naked Gun films, amongst other things. So, you know, this, this Hollywood politicking thing is a ruthless business and um, egos are as much involved as common sense in a lot of cases. So Brain Donors, as it became to be called, was pretty much, you know, tied up, chained up, locked in a suitcase and thrown into a river as a movie. And since then, it has kind of got a little bit of a, a cult following, which is interesting. And of course, eventually, in, in a lot of cases, which is really nice, movies can find an audience. And that's what's happened in this one. And the movie is a lot of fun. It's light. It's silly. There are a lot of sight gags in there, some of which very much telegraph themselves, some of which don't. But um, I found it really enjoyable. And after the kind of emotional heaviness, and this isn't a criticism of faces, seeing a movie like Brain Donors was really kind of refreshing. It was a palate cleanser for me. So um, I'll just play the bits of some bits of dialogue from uh, brain donors just to give you a little bit of an idea of the silliness that goes on in this film how many of you saw this man carelessly and without regard for life and property careen into my clients at almost 85 miles per hour hmm. and who of you will tell their story to my young 24 year old miss international wet t-shirt champion nymphomaniac secretary Yo, right? where to any place with no extradition laws Step on it. Right. Enjoy driving a cab. Nah. Nah, as soon as I get my driver's license, I'm quitting. Aren't those numbers clicking by awfully fast? You're probably a speed reader. Well, you got me there. Another two miles and we own this cab. I hope you brought money. What are you doing? Do you know who I am? A psychotic cab driver? I'm Rocco Melanchek. I hope you know you're blowing any possible tip. You were my attorney in my divorce case. Uh, uh, Until you started dating my wife during the trial. Uh, and you got the court to double the alimony request she originally made. Well, you didn't want her to keep seeing me in cheap motels, did you? For God's sake, man, she was your wife. We served in the army together. He owes me one. I threw myself on top of an 18-year-old Vietnamese girl and saved his life. No. She looked 18, officer, I swear. Too noisy around here. I'll say I got twice the sleep at a Julio Iglesias concert. Now, five minutes, Mr. Valari. Five minutes? My God! Have you consulted another doctor? You are a man that spells cash with a capital K. You should go back to school. I hated teaching. Relax. After she sees Alan dance, you've got nothing to worry about. Except for taxes, depletion of the ozone layer, and diseases due to any sexual contact. That's a load off my mind. Now, you know dogs, Mr. Melanchek. No dogs. I used to be a chef in a Korean restaurant. Oh, good food, good friends, good conversation. I'm twice the man you are. So is she. And it's driving me mad. We'll do anything that is best for the ballet. Well, there's no need to commit suicide. And to show you no hard feelings, how about a cigar? I don't smoke. Well, I do. Why don't you run out and get me one? And that Lillian, I... Last well, I didn't see you there. I stand corrected, I saw you, but I chose to ignore you. Oh. Lisa, my darling. You excuse us, two's company and three's an adult movie. Now, here she is, the woman voted by her senior class, most likely to go up a few dress sizes. A woman who would be a man, except her name is Lillian. Lillian Overlap. Oh. Was that the doorbell? That wasn't you? Never mind, just ignore it. 
So you can kind of see what I mean, shotgun comedy stuff. Uh, the plot of this movie is really, really, really simple. Three manic idiots, a lawyer, a cab driver, and a handyman team up to run a ballet company to fulfill the will of a millionaire. Antics result as a trio try to outwit the rich widow and her scheming big-shot lawyer who also wants to run the ballet. That's basically it. And the rest of it is sight gags and pratfalls and visual gags and other things um, all around that kind of theme. The cast is pretty good, too. There's a, a good, solid comedy cast in this. Of course, we have John Turturro, who people know as all sorts of different kinds of actors. He can do comedy, he can do drama, he could even do musicals. He's, in fact, he's done one or two of those. Um, and in this case, he's playing the very Groucho kind of named Roland T. Fleckfizer, who's a literal, literal am- ambulance-chasing lawyer, because the first time we see him, he is chasing an ambulance down the street on foot. Um, he, he plays the lawyer, um, Bob Nelson, a comedian who is kind of a slapstick sort of comedian who was for a very short time in a comedy troupe, a three-person comedy troupe called Identical Triplets with Eddie Murphy back in the day when Eddie Murphy was quite young. Bob Nelson has gone on because um, he had a chat with Red Skelton, the famous comedian. He's now become what they call a G-rated comedian. He turned his career around, decided he wasn't going to do anything naughty, and decided to become a G-rated comedian. Um, He does have a website where he has a whole bunch of videos up, but he hasn't gone on to success. And the other person in the uh, trio is Mel Smith, who people who know British comedy know from things like Not the 9 O'Clock News and Alas Smith & Jones. He also directed a number of comedy movies as well. Mel Smith plays Rocco Melanchek, uh, a cab driver, as you heard in the clips I played. And he, Turturro is basically Groucho. Bob Nelson is Harpo. And Mel Smith's Chico. Those, those are the archetypal roles that these three guys are playing in this. Then, of course, this being a kind of iteration of a Marx Brothers comedy, you've got to have your Margaret Dumont character and she's played by Nancy Marshall playing Lillian Oglethorpe the millionaire then you have the uh, kind of villain of the piece the rich snob uh, Edmund Laszlo played by John Savident an English actor if you saw Hudson Hawk he played the auctioneer who gets blown up in Hudson Hawk for instance did spend a short time in England in the uh, sorry in America in the early 90s doing various character roles and then went on to England back to England and ended up playing a character on the soap opera Coronation Street for a lot of years. Uh, then you've of course the other part of uh, Marx Brothers comedy you've got to have the ingenues and the ingenues in this case are Spike Alexander playing Alan Grant an aspiring ballet dancer and his fiance uh, Lisa played by Juliana Donald. Basically, the ingenues don't matter in this kind of a movie. They're only there as placeholders. They're nobody. You know, they're there basically for the as plot engines. They don't really matter. They're just there for the idiots to dance around. In the same way that the pompous Margaret Dumont character Lillian Oglethorpe is just there as a straight man for Flack Pfizer, which is not in itself a bad thing. Uh, you've got to have these play characters. The Marx Brothers movies had that kind of solid plot line and, and that um, yeah, you knew who everybody was supposed to be and what role they were supposed to fulfil in the film. And uh, the, all of those archetypes are in this film as well. There are some great sight gags in this movie. Uh, there's a the really good bit with a big, chunky 1992-style laptop computer 
which kind of goes in an interesting direction and is a little bit of fun. Jacques, the handyman played by Bob Nelson, also has that um, Harpo Marx thing of having everything you could possibly need to move the plot along in his pockets. So where Harpo had things like he'd bring a blowtorch out, this guy's got an air horn, he's got any sorts of things. There's a scene when they get arrested by police and he have to has to empty his pockets onto the counter. And that kind of goes in a um, slightly manic direction. Speaking of direction, the movie was directed by um, Dennis Duggan, who was in a spin-off TV series from the Rockford Files, a thing called Richie Brockelman Private Eye, where he played, uh, even though he was in his 20s at the time, he played a teenager who becomes a private eye. In a sense, it only lasted one season, that. But he went on to direct um, a whole bunch of episodic TV and things like that, and then directed a whole bunch of stuff for a comedian movie star whom I detest. And that is Adam Sandler. He directed Happy Gilmore, amongst other things, and has since had a long and lucrative relationship with uh, the Happy Madison production company, directing things for Adam Sandler. I suppose the guy's got to earn a living. I mean, Dennis Duggan's a good, honest comedy journeyman in that sense. He's not at the top end of comedy, comedic directors, but he does a pretty good job and he knows where to point the camera. Just a shame about the Adam Sandler thing, I suppose. But uh, nonetheless, brain donors, I like. Uh, I I do like the Zucker Abram Zucker approach, but I think one of the weaknesses of this film, and, and there is a structural weakness in one sense, is that those kind of really shotgun machine gun bits of dialogue. You need to have breathing space in between them to a certain extent. Yeah, they're, they're coming in thick and fast and there's a lot of fun in them. But if you look at the way they did it in the Marx Brothers movies, there was a gap there. There, there was a bit of a space in the middle to um, let people laugh and digest the jokes and then move on to the next slot. But um, following the Zucker Abrams Zucker um, approach, this movie doesn't give you that breathing space. The editing is just that little bit too tight, I suppose. Whereas if it was just that tiny bit loose, if there was maybe a beat between the jokes, it may have worked out better. But nonetheless, it's a good, honest um, homage to the Marx Brothers comedies. And um, it's nice seeing Tatura just being manic and crazy and things like that. Mel Smith's very good in it. Uh, Bob Nelson... You know, he's got a goofy look about him and he's quite good with the physical comedy but he doesn't make enough of an impression as the Harpo kind of character because Harpo of course because he didn't talk and Jacques does talk in this movie uh, used body language and facial expressions a lot more but that isn't particularly Bob Nelson's metier he's much better with, with a different kind of thing which is the physical comedy and um a lot of verbal stuff, so, you know, sight gags kind of thing. But as I said, it was a bit of fun watching Brain Donors after the intensity of faces, but uh, would I recommend it to people? Yeah, I mean, particularly if you like the Zucker... And I just dropped a book on the floor. Uh, if you like the Zucker Abrams Zucker kind of comedy stuff, definitely go for it. It's um, It's well worth your time in that sense. And also, it's good to stick to the studios to a certain extent because studios do some monstrous things and get away with it and uh, kind of, you know, sidelining a movie which may have found an audience because of a change in um, 
the producers of the film's allegiances in, in one sense is a kind of a dishonest thing to do. You make your contract, you stick to it. But um, movie studios don't tend to operate that way. They tend to be very reactive, mostly to egos. But, um, yeah, less said about those bastards, the better. Anyway, I'm going to take a break now, and I'm going to talk about something much, much different. And that is the career of John Cassavetes, and in particular, his kind of breakthrough indie movie of 1968, even though it was filmed in 1965, Faces, starring, amongst others, Lynn Carlin, John Marley, Gina Rollins, and Seymour Cassell. What are you going to sell us this time, Harry? Money. Actually, it's a very good film. We call it the uh, Dolce Vita of the commercial field. We were trying to capture several approaches. And we came up with an impressionistic document that shocks. Is that so? I don't think it's so much shocks as dishonest. It's honest, but it's a good piece in itself. So you see, we're a, a, a little nervous about hitting you with this. Oh, now they've got nothing to be nervous about. It's a shot in the dark, but it's strong and it's attractive. Yeah, it better be better than the last one, Harry. Wait, let's see it, J.P. I'd rather hear him talk about it We'll again. talk about it later. J.P. All right, I don't roll it. Cassavetes is a really interesting director. He's one of those directors that film buffs love for a number of reasons. Uh, most people know him for things like playing the husband Guy in Rosemary's Baby or for playing Franco in The Dirty Dozen and or even for Johnny Staccato, the uh, TV series where he played a jazz musician come private eye in the 1950s. But uh, Cassavetes was... Very much his own man, he's very much his own kind of filmmaker. He wanted to make small independent films about people's emotions. And so in order to finance that in a, a very Hollywood kind of way, he'd do a few Hollywood films to, in order to finance the films that he wanted to make. And then he'd make these very personal, very kind of intimate films with a cast of his friends, 
people like uh, Seymour Cassell, of course, Gina Rollins, to whom he was married, Ben Gazzara, and um, just basically make these uh, imp- partly improvised, but generally very interesting and, and very kind of intense personal movies simply because he wanted to get his artistic vision on screen. And that's exactly what he did. This movie, Faces, was made in 1965, but only released in 1968. Cassavetes had the usual cash flow problems that uh, he had with this kind of a film. It was made for about $250,000. A lot of it was filmed in Cassavetes' own home. And by association, we've got to assume it's also Gina Rowland's home. And uh, partly improvised by the cast, but with... Uh, a direction given to them by Cassavetes. Now, Cassavetes was very much a method kind of actor, and he trusted his ensemble to make this film the way he wanted it, and he liked the spontaneity of improvisation. He liked uh, autobiographical little bits and pieces. He liked the kind of life experience that actors brought to a role when they were set free. And this movie is the first big example of that in Cassavetes' oeuvre. He did some movies before this one, one of them, which Too Late Blues I want to do in a future podcast, which had Bobby Darren and Stella Stevens in it. He also did other um, movies like Woman Under the Influence and The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and other films like this. But Faces is driving into the deep end of Cassavetes in a sense because it... um, at the start, it's very alienating. At the start, we get a fairly long scene set in a theatrette where the protagonist of the of the piece, um, Richard Forst, played by John Marley. Now, John Marley, you'll know from being the guy who got the horse's head in his bed in The Godfather, but a good character actor, and um, uh, really in this one, he does bring a crazy intensity to the role. Uh, he is in a theatrette and he's running a company and there are people kind of spouting advertising at him. Uh, they're about to show him a, an advertising promotion for his company. What his company does is very kind of vague. But um, they're all in a theatrette. It's well lit. Um, he gets one of the secretaries to look, yeah, put a cigarette in his mouth and light it and then take the cigarette back out again and make him a cup of coffee. He says disparaging things about her. It's a touch of the madmen there, and one of the things that's been said about this film too is it shows the way American relations between the sexes were before feminism, and I think that's a very important part of this as well because there are characters who there's a strong sense of male entitlement among some of the characters, particularly among in John Marley's character Richard Forst, and also in a character uh, Jim McCarthy played by. Val Avery, there's this sense of entitlement but being lost as well in the film. Now, the story is fairly simple, but uh, the application of it is quite complex. Um, Richard and Maria Force, played by John Marley and Lynn Carlin, in her first acting role, are a married couple who um, are kind of lost in the roles that they're supposed to play. Forced visits a prostitute, a genie played by Gina Rollins, and spends some time with her, and then goes home to his wife, Maria, and they have a conversation, and they're talking around you know, various trivialities and things. There's, this is one of the first movies, by the way, that explicitly, first American films at least, that explicitly discusses cunnilingus, for instance. 
Uh, even though they don't say cunnilingus, they very much do um, have a conversation over a kitchen table between John Marley and Lynn Cullen where they talk about that and have a bit of a joke about it. Uh, but during the course of that conversation, Richard tells Maria that he wants a divorce. And she's pretty shattered. And then while she, she's in the room, he calls up Jeannie and says that he wants to see her again. She um, And, of course, Maria's pretty shattered by that too. So um, Richard goes over to um, Jeannie's place. And she's there with a friend of hers and a couple of clients, one of which is Val Avery's Jim McCarthy. And uh, as the conversation progresses and everybody's pretending to have a good time, everybody's over the top happy and singing little bits of songs and cracking jokes and things like that. It turns into a pissing contest between McCarthy and Forst. And there's that kind of male privilege and male dominance kind of thing that's a part of that, which is quite interesting to see. It, it does have a touch of the madman about it, though it is kind of um, more intense as well. And one of the things about this film, too, is so much of the film is close-ups of faces. It's a movie called Faces, but a lot of the film is close-ups of the character actors' faces. And in particularly in the scene where John Marley and Val Avery are going toe-to-toe, the faces you see on the screen aren't the standard Hollywood faces. You see John Marley's got a pockmarked and lined face. Val Avery's got a pockmarked and paunchy face. And um, just these actors kind of intensely emoting at each other and playing off each other and throwing in little bits of business that um, followed Cassavetti's guidelines but are very much improvised is... It's, it's kind of like watching a cockfight in, in a weird sense. Um Eventually, uh, the guys leave and Forst is there with Jeannie. He says he wants to see her some more. He, he wants to build a relationship with her, even though she is a hookup. And we also see her emotional side of it as well, which is quite interesting. And before uh, Forst gets there as well, there's, a, there's some scenes between Val Avery and Gina Rollins where different aspects of the character characters are shown. And for some of the characters, with most of the characters in this film, there are moments of revelation where the mask drops. And there's a really good essay on the Criterion webpage about this one by um, Stuart Clowens, where he says the movie is about masks and faces. And he tells us the different moments in the movie where the masks drop for a little bit and we see the, the raw honesty of the characters. And... By association, because this is very much largely improvised, we see the intent. We could see a little bit of the actors in in there as well. There's a clarity to what we see on the screen, which is that clarity that comes from actors using their own lives and improvising with them. And that makes for a very intense experience for the audience. Once you get into the rhythm of it, and you understand what Cassavetes is doing with this kind of washed out 16 millimeter black and white film. It becomes an emotional trip and and we really do invest in the characters Uh, while after the separation um, Maria is out with three of her girlfriends at Whiskey A Go Go the famous Los Angeles nightclub of the 1960s Whiskey A Go Go they filmed it on location there and you see the kind of crammed in Whiskey A Go Go crowd They, they actually filmed it on they didn't clear the place out they actually filmed it in um, a nightclub full of people who were there to be at the nightclub. And you see the kind of cross-section of Los Angeles society that was at Whiskey A Go-Go. 
And while there, the three, the four women meet a hustler called Chet, played by Seymour Cassell. Now, Seymour Cassell, we know, is a character actor. Fantastic character actor, really um, still working today. He's still going there. And I love Seymour Cassell as an actor. He's uh, There's always a quirkiness about him. Even if he's playing a tough guy character, there's a quirkiness about him. And in this one is Chet the Hustler. He's a kind of hippie hustler, um, but with some insights as well. So the four women take... Chet back to Maria's house of course um, Richard isn't there because he's off with Jeannie and uh, one by one the women peel off until Chet's left there alone with Maria and he chases her around the house, they kiss and cuddle and um, the implication which is off screen is that they sleep together and they do indeed sleep together we then cut to the next morning and Chet wakes up and Jeannie is passed out on the bathroom floor having overdosed on sleeping tablets. Now, if you've seen the Martin Scorsese documentary about the history of American film, they do a prolonged piece of that scene in the movie when he talks about Cassavetes and Cassavetes movies. And it is very intense. Most of it is Lynn Carlin, unconscious, or pretending to be unconscious, her character Maria, unconscious, and Seymour Cassell trying to revive her. At first he calls up emergency services, but he doesn't know the address of the place. He got driven there at night time. He doesn't, has no idea of the address of the place, and this woman's dying on the floor in the meantime. So he does what he has to do. He, he puts her in a bathtub and, and gets water onto her. He makes her up salt water for her to throw up. She doesn't throw up, so he ends up bending her over the toilet, talking to her all the time, trying to get her awake, and sticks his fingers down her throat so she vomits up the sleeping pills. And he try, he, basically he brings her back to life. He saves her life. And uh, even if he, there are some moments of violence there where he's slapping her to try to get her to wake up from this thing. And you can see the kind of self-loathing of the Czech character as he's slapping her because he doesn't want to slap her, but it's the only way he knows to wake her up. And he has a long conversation with Maria um, when she, as she does come around. And, and then there's an incredible emotional intensity and a rawness to it. And the Czech character shows this insight and compassion that we don't expect to see from a Hollywood hustler. He, he tells her his philosophy of life. He talks to her. He talks about life as pain, but yeah, you've still got to do it and, and things like that. And it's um, a very raw piece of cinema as well. Uh, now, Lynn Carlin was actually a receptionist at Screen Gems, the uh, production company, distribution company, sorry, at the time that Cassavetes found her and um, cast her in the movie. And she is incredibly good as Maria. In fact, she got an Oscar nomination for her very first film role, as indeed did Seymour Cassell playing Chet. Um, Their scenes together are incredible to watch. They're just emotionally raw and emotionally kind of accurate. There's a kind of the whole thing's kind of cinema verite, but this is the right verite end of verite. And there's scenes together. You you could watch six or seven hours of those two actors just talking to each other and improvising there. There's, There's a magic in that which you won't see very many other places in cinema. Then, just as we're getting, you know, just I got really kind of involved in the two characters. Richard comes home and chases Chet, and Chet 
jumps out of an upstairs window, jumps off the roof of the garage and runs down, almost down a cliff face and escapes. And then there's the reconciliation between Richard and Maria, which is very ugly. And um, one of the, the problems I have with it is the fact that they get back together because obviously there's there are so many problems. You can see so many fractures in these the relationship between these two people. And yet they're reconciling in their own fucked up way. So that's basically how the, how the movie rolls out. Now, for me, it's one of those movies that refreshes me a lot. It's one of those movies, when I've been watching shit movies for a while, a movie like Faces or something equally important and, and equally kind of emotionally honest and un-Hollywood really blows me away. It, it clears out the pipes enormously for me as a movie buff. And this movie does that. It's... um. I think I might want to talk about it on the radio. If I can find a copy for this, I might talk about this on the radio as well. Because it's an incredibly important piece of cinema. It uses a lot of the same tropes as French New Wave stuff, but there's a rawness to the emotions that not many French New Wave films had. And Cassavetes had to struggle for years to get this film made. He had to do TV and movie stuff to get the financing for this, where in any reasonable and rational universe people would, would have given Cassavetes the money he needed to do what he wanted to do because he's a singular cinematic Im- uh, visionary. He's too independent, small cinema, what Orson Welles was, to mainstream cinema. He really does... I mean, I can't speak of this movie highly enough. At the start, I found it very alienating that the process and the kind of long improvisations and the fact that the characters kind of meander around rather than there being a, a tightly plotted piece. And the dialogue is anything but Hollywood dialogue, mostly because most of it's improvised by incredibly skilled actors. And you do see moments in this film too where one of the actors will throw an idea at the other actor and there's a moment of confusion, just like there is in real life when unexpected things happen. There's that moment of confusion before they kind of rally and work out their character's response to it. Now, that's not a bad thing at all. I find that a really good thing. And it is it is kind of like... It's a combination of combat and cooperation, the way the actors approach this movie. It's... Um, I mean, a lot of movies talked about the relationships between men and women particularly in the 60s, you've got things like the Days of One and Rovers, which won an Academy Award, and but was incredibly well scripted and incredibly well acted by Lee Remick and, and Jack Lemmon. But you know because everything is in sharp focus and the camera doesn't move around a lot, the whole environment around which the acting takes place in a movie like that screams Hollywood. Whereas in a movie like this, which is filmed in Cassavetti's own home in various rooms of his house and around his own home, there's a kind of texture to a lived-in house compared to something set up by um, set designers in a movie studio that gives you the right background. And then you've got actors who, with their director, um, Cassavetes has created an environment for them where they feel comfortable and feel good about being emotionally raw 
and that's exactly what they do. I mean, um, John Marley was an act, started out slightly late in life as an actor. He'd actually been in World War Two and had been a soldier. And he's got that kind of lived-in face with um, the kind of bouffant hair and, and the kind of masculine anger that a lot of guys who went through World War Two seem to have on the screen. So he's got that going for him. And Lynn Carlin, who was only about 28 when the film was filmed, is probably playing a character maybe 10 years older than her. Her emotional honesty as Maria is something incredible, particularly for somebody in their first film role. Uh, I've been on a run of things lately where people in the first film roles, of course, Citizen Kane, most of the cast, and the director, of course, were making their first feature film. And... But they were all really highly trained actors at the time. But in this one, Lynn Carlin seems to be reacting to the other characters as herself. Whether that's true or not is another matter. But there's a verisimilitude there that really is mind-blowing. And that constant focus that Cassavetes has on the faces of the actors... So you can see every nuance and every micro-expression of um, emotion and, and thought in their faces really does take this movie to a different level. It shows that with the right people involved, you can do miraculous things. And, and that was Cassavetti's vision, was to be emotionally honest and to make the most anti-Hollywood movies possible. But if he was only reacting against Hollywood, that'd be one thing. But that's not ex- that's not all that the, the Cassavetes was doing. He was also talking about the relationships between men and women. And in a sense, there's, there's mirroring in this film as well. At the start of the film, of course, you've got um, Richard going off with Jeannie, the prostitute. And then towards the end of the film, you have Maria sleeping with Chet, who's a hustler. And the two most emotionally honest and the two, in a weird sense, wisest characters in this film are the two sex workers, Jeannie and Chet. They're the ones who are most in touch with their own feelings, even if they're not always acting on them. And Jeannie is going through a lot of shit, you can tell, from the way uh, Gina Rollins plays her. But they're the ones who are most in touch with their feelings, because I suppose they work demands that they be in touch with their feelings and be in touch with the feelings of others. Whereas being a housewife in um, Maria's case and working in the, at a high level in the corporate world, as in Richard's case, their job is not about being emotionally open. It's about being emotionally closed and being logical and being hard-nosed and all that kind of stuff. So I, I really appreciated the fact that the wisdom came out of the two people in the film who in a standard Hollywood film would not be the two people from whom wisdom comes. Wisdom in Hollywood films comes from priests and sages of various kinds. They don't come from sex workers who based on their life experience probably have more knowledge and more wisdom about uh, the human heart and the human mind. And Cassavetti is actually doing that making that as a deliberate choice is something that I found really, really interesting. And um, Seymour Cassell in particular has long monologue scenes where he's talking to 
um, Maria as she's kind of semi dropping in and out of consciousness. And also, there are scenes earlier where he's with the four women, where a lot of what he does is listen. And it brings back that really interesting fact that great actors are also great listeners. And you can see, and this is probably part of the improv process and part of the virtue of the improv process, you can see Seymour Cassell listening and reacting and, and thinking and processing what other people are saying, what these women are saying. And while it's probably an actor trying to find a way to have his next go and see what he can add to the piece, the way it plays to an audience is that this guy is emotionally sensitive to the people he's with because the kind of stuff he does obviously demands that. And so that, that process of improvisation actually works to strengthen the characters in all of the cases here. And I find that really interesting. And I think it's a virtue that came from not the necessity of a low-budget film, because low-budget films can be just as scripted as high-budget films if they really want to be. But with Cassavetes wanting to you know, kind of look at mid-20th century American life, and showing us some positives, but mostly showing us the bullshit of middle-century American and Australian life. There, there's still that stuff going on. I mean, the increased corporatization of the world says that people should be full of bullshit, even though they want honesty and transparency, and, and companies talk a lot about honesty and transparency. What they really want is the facade. They want a, a kind of tranquil environment in which to do their stuff they don't want waves made they don't want things that are going to maybe go against the perceived corporate reality and Cassavetes was talking about this and writing about this and filming movies about this well before it was even a thing in the minds of most people it's it's an incredible movie for a number of reasons. We've got the documentary side of it as well, which is seeing the way the relationships between the genders were working at that time. We have also the... Uh, there are a few different nightclubs appearing, at Whiskey Go-Go being one of them. There's a little stand-up comedy gig as well. There's also another um, bar-slash-nightclub that uh, they film in. And again, there's that wonderful thing that I've mentioned before in the podcast of seeing how the world was at that particular time not the Hollywood facade and the Hollywood kind of simplification of that world but seeing the way a nightclub really was in 1965 when the movie was filmed and seeing how bartenders work and all that kind of little detail which make this movie now a period piece but also add texture to the world in which the character that the characters inhabit and I love it for that reason. It's um, I'm not going to watch this movie again for a while. Not because I, I want to spoil it, but because for me, there's an intensity to this movie that I don't want to revisit a lot. Um, I will see it again. I, I don't doubt that I'll see it again, but I think it's one of those ones where I've got to be in the right headspace to see it again. And I've got to be ready for the emotions that it, it instills in me and elicits from me as much as I am about the emotions that the characters are, are going through. It does really bring out thoughts and emotions in people about relationships and about the facade that we put up in certain environments and how much bullshit that is. 
and yeah, all credit to Cassavetes for that. He wasn't appreciated as much during his lifetime as he has become now that his um, movies have become available more widespread. But this man's cinema is cinema for grown-ups. It's not, it's not going to give you simple pat answers. It's not going to reassure you. It's not going to tell you that everything's okay. It's a movie that says, yes, we're fucked up apes, but we have moments of honesty and moments of clarity and moments of transcendence that make us worth the effort. And I really love that in this film. I I really intensely love the fact that Cassavetes went there and that Cassavetes, at the time, had enough of a feminist perception that there are long stretches of this film where he lets the female characters speak and the female characters and the female actors improvise. And we do see the vulnerabilities that females had in the 1960s, the fact that you know, a divorce could be a, an incredibly financially crippling thing for them at the time, as indeed it is for a number of women now. But he gives equal time to the female characters as to the male. And... That isn't something that always happens in cinema, even independent cinema. And I, even though, of course, there's not the kind of the sensibility that Cassavetes had about this kind of stuff, isn't the same as a modern feminist sensibility. It's a man trying to understand women, even though some one of his characters says, "I don't understand women." It's one of his least likable characters who says that. The one who buys the bullshit wholeheartedly is the one who says that and the one who in some ways with the exception of Richard treats women the worst but there's not much else I want to say about Faces I think it's a movie for you to experience be in the right headspace there is a five disc criterion set now the same five movies were released here in Australia without a lot of the criterion extras but in very high quality prints and that's the one that I picked up there I think Morris you have the um, same box set of Cassavetes films and it's criminally underpriced if you look around the place Uh, but it's just if you're a real film buff and not just somebody who likes to be entertained by films someone who likes to dive in with both hands and get your hands wet with a film then this is definitely that kind of movie anyway that's about it for the podcast sorry if i ranted and raved a little bit about faces but it's just such it was such an experience to watch for me but anyway, um, I've got one more show before the end of the year. I'm not sure whether I'm going to get it out before the reindeer shit hits the roof. Uh, let me see. Nope, it'll be just after the reindeer shit hits the roof that I'll be doing another Paleo Center podcast. And of course, being the atheist I am, I celebrate Newton Mass where we give gifts of knowledge. Um, and I hope the holidays go well for you. I hope that... Uh, it's everything you want for it. I hope that it's something that reassures you and, and it affirms your life rather than diminishes it. And if you're by yourself, um, just please take care of yourself. I know it's a hard time for some people as well. Look after yourselves. Do what you need to do to maintain yourself and take care. So that's about it this time around. As usual, there's I've got to thank the Patreon subscribers who support the podcast financially with from as little as a bucker month it's appreciated and it does help me get good things like Cassavetti's box sets to talk about 
So um, thank you again. And, of course, the Patreon subscribers get a movie-style credit at the end of each podcast. So look after yourselves. Take care. Watch good films. Watch bad films. Just watch films. And I'll be back in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. I'll be back in a week with another Martian Drive-In podcast. And um, look after yourselves. Bye. And here are the credits for the Patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin the Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, the New York unit director, and Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. We also have Paul, who does the spatial makeup effects, and Kathleen, who has yet to have a job in the credits. And Eric, of course, is the set security lead. So thank you to everybody who supports the podcast and to the people who listen to it. If you want to support the podcast with some micropayments, please go to patreon.com slash paleocinema. And I'll catch all of you next time.